Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of talking about osteoarthritis phenotypes. Many people wonder why they got osteoarthritis, why it differs from someone else with osteoarthritis, and why sometimes it responds to treatment for you where it doesn't for someone else. For anyone who has osteoarthritis, there are many reasons why it might develop in the first place. The progression of the disease can vary dramatically between different individuals, and their response to different treatments can similarly be quite distinct. With a greater understanding of the genesis of osteoarthritis, osteoarthritis can often be described as a spectrum of disease composed of different phenotypes. Some people have even described this as a mixed bag of disorders, all falling under the osteoarthritis umbrella. By characterizing osteoarthritis into phenotypes, it helps to improve our knowledge of the disease and ultimately enables targeted treatment based on the phenotype that a patient presents with. On this episode of Joint Action, we'll be speaking to Dr. Francis Berenbaum to learn more about osteoarthritis phenotypes, how they are identified, and how this affects the management of osteoarthritis. Dr. Berenbaum is Professor of Rheumatology at Sorbonne University and is the director of the Department of Rheumatology 
at Saint Antoine Hospital in Paris, France. He's the national representative of bone and joint diseases at Aviasan, the French Alliance for the Life Science and Health. Dr. Berenbaum leads an experimental team at the INSERM Institute. His basic research institutes include the understanding of relationships between metabolic diseases and osteoarthritis. And his clinical research focuses on new targeted therapies for treating symptoms and structural changes in osteoarthritis. Hello and welcome to the show, Francis, and thank you so much for coming along. Hello, David. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, it's, it's great to have you on the show today, Francis. But before we actually get into the main content of today's topic, I just wonder if you could share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like for you. Yes, I, I'm a rheumatologist. So I'm at the head of a department of rheumatology in Paris. Sorbonne University, Saint Antoine Hospital, and I also have a research team working on osteoarthritis, looking for new targets based on animal models, cell culture, and so on. So I have both hats, I would say. A typical day starts around 7.30. I arrive at my office, I take a coffee, and then I have two hours which are very quiet, the quietest period of the day. And so that's the time where, where I look for emails with fast answers. And I look at some uh, a table of contents of journals to pick up some uh, interesting news in the field, uh, not only in, uh, on OA uh, and not only in the field of rheumatology. And then for the rest of the day, it really depends. I have an outpatient consultation two times a week. I have also uh, some uh, edition works because I'm an associate editor of the Annals of the Rheumatic Disease. For the lab, I have the lab meeting, uh, journal clubs, and so on. So that's fantastic because there is not one day which is like the next. So, uh, yeah, very, very well, say that exciting day. Variety is the spice of life. And I'm, I'm sure as yeah. we both mature in our careers, having that variety is, is fantastic. Oh, yes, really. Yeah. Now... More importantly, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? I like cycling. I started not so long ago, uh, maybe it was uh, less than 10 years ago, uh, because I, I was repeating to my patients, uh, you should do cycling and so on, but I didn't. <laughs> so I started cycling by, by myself and then I really uh, like uh, that it's outside and and so that's what i prefer and i also like cooking but really cycling is uh, not sport it's physical activity cycling yes yeah no it's 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 wonderful i um have been a, a road cyclist and triathlete for many years when i was much younger um, and actually uh -huh. was fortunate enough to spend a bit of time in france and have climbed up one of your sacred mountains called mont uh. but more recently i've actually taken up mountain biking and i, I love it yeah. just being out mm. there wilderness is superb. Now, Francis, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? That's really a very difficult question. So I will pick up uh, five words 
that comes from my friends and family. So of course, it's quite positive. I'm not sure that that's uh, always positive. But the one I would pick up is first, I am very optimistic, always, even if there is something quite negative. I'm very, very optimistic, enthusiastic also, because I do what I love. Innovative also. I like having some uh, crazy ideas and uh, then uh, tolerant and sociable. That's the words that come from, from my friends, once again. <laughs> from my enemies, maybe not the same. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good, good to listen to your friends and good to listen to your enemies in very small doses. But I think the optimistic innovator are some great, great qualities for someone who's um, engaged at the front of their field as you are, Francis. Now, before we get into the main content of today about phenotypes, I'm just wondering if you could actually start by explaining what that term actually means. So what is a phenotype? So maybe you have uh, blue eyes. I have brown eyes. This is a different phenotype. So this is very simple example. For disease, it's the presentation of the disease, the, the, the definition of, of a phenotype. So it could be a characteristic, uh, it could be a trait, it could be a, a behavior, uh, whatever. The difference will be a, a phenotype. It's what you observe. This results on different possibilities for phenotyping someone. And also this is resulting from the genetics, from the environment. And so all together, this, this is the definition of a phenotype. Superb. Well, that's a great explanation. Now, you've been pivotally involved in this field for a long while and really been leading some important work around uh, metabolic or inflammatory changes that occur in the context of osteoarthritis. Now, there's been a well-established link between being overweight or obese and the development of osteoarthritis and weight-bearing joints like the hip or the knee. Can you explain to us a little bit more about what is the metabolic osteoarthritis phenotype and how it is associated with the development of osteoarthritis? Yes, this is a long, long history. In fact, maybe 20 years ago, osteoarthritis was seen as a disease of tear and wear only. And so when you have overweight, of course, this will increase the pressure on the cartilage. And so you have the consequence, which is osteoarthritis. And 20 years ago came the discovery that the adipose tissue from obese patients was able to release inflammatory mediators, inflammatory molecules, inflammation into the blood. And at the same period, maybe 15 years ago or something like that, came the first epidemiological studies showing that the patient with obesity had twofold increase in symptomatic hand osteoarthritis. So these two new discoveries lead to the possibility that the inflammatory molecules coming from the adipose tissue, from the fat tissue, was able to reach the joints and by this way could lead to inflammation into the joints, leading to the osteoarthritis. So this was the first step in this story. And then maybe you, you are aware that in fact, 
having obesity could also be associated with other metabolic factors. The metabolic factors are the factors that could lead to cardiovascular problems. And these factors are diabetes, uh, hypertension, lipid abnormalities, and there are some cohort of patients showing that the patient with these metabolic factors have an increased risk of osteoarthritis over the obesity. And by this way came the hypothesis that these metabolic factors could have an independent impact on osteoarthritis. So this is really the, the story leading to this phenotype of OA that is metabolic osteoarthritis. What we have just to keep in mind that the majority of the study of these studies were in symptomatic osteoarthritis, meaning the patient with pain into their joint. And now it's possible that this uh, specific phenotype could really due to the pain, meaning the association could be with the pain. And we know that the patient with obesity have an increased sensitivity to pain. So we do not know a lot about pain in a way, which is very strange because this is really the, the main feature of this disease. And the reason why the patient with OA have pain is very not well known. And this aspect now is in the research in order to have a better understanding on that. Yeah, so important. And as you've just alluded to, a lot of these discoveries, both around the importance of uh, the mechanics of obesity, the consequences in terms of inflammatory molecules and other associated uh, conditions like uh, diabetes, high blood pressure and high cholesterol have all really occurred over the last 10 to 20 years. But as you were just alluding to, there's also a lot more that we don't currently know, both about the onset of pain um, and what can be done about reducing the impact of those metabolic changes. Now, Francis, you've discussed metabolic osteoarthritis, but are there different types of osteoarthritis other than that? Yes, as a very easy example is the post-trauma osteoarthritis. If you have a, a ski accident at 20 years old, you may have a problem on your ligaments or menisque uh, instability of the joint uh, or leading to a menisectomy, meaning you release a, a part of the meniscus. And then some years after that trauma, this could lead to uh, osteoarthritis. And so that's what we call the post-trauma OA. This is really one other phenotype. Aging also, it's a disease which is correlated to aging, of course. And this also could be a specific phenotype in the sense that not being too complicated, but by research, we know now that there are some cells that could be old. That's what we call the senescent cells. And these old cells are able to release mediators, uh, molecules that could have a deleterious impact on the joint. So there are this kind of phenotypes based on risk factors. That's fantastic. And, you know, I think it's, I guess, most important to un for the listeners out there to understand that there's lots of different ways a person can get to that development of osteoarthritis. And it's not just by one route. And more often than not, people have a couple of different types of factors predisposing to their osteoarthritis. Now, 
How have people gone about identifying these different phenotypes? Yeah, so you see what, what we have discussed up to now is a fashion to phenotype, which is based on the risk factors. We know the risk factors and we consider that one risk factor equal to one phenotype. So this is one uh, possibility, which is based on these epidemiological studies showing that when you are obese, you increase your risk of OA. When you have a trauma, you increase your, your risk of OA and so on. But in fact, you are, there are many other possibilities to, to phenotype uh, the patients. Another way is the localization. Hand OA, knee OA are two phenotypes. This is another uh, possibility. A more recent one has been based on imaging. When you perform an MRI, uh, you see that in some patients, there is some abnormalities into the bone, what we call the bone marrow lesion. And some patients have more inflammation in the synovial tissue, the membrane which are around our joints. And these are two possibilities, two phenotypes. One bone phenotype, the other one is the synovial phenotype. There are other possibilities which are the progressors. What does it mean? If you take 100 patients with OA, after five years, only 20 will progress in the disease. 80 will not progress into the disease. So these are two phenotypes, the progressors and the non-progressors. So you see that this other possibility to phenotype the patient. All these opportunities for phenotyping the patients are based on hypothesis. So that's what we call the hypothesis-driven phenotyping. But now there are uh, new uh, methodological possibilities, new statistical possibilities, giving the possibility to phenotype, to grouping the patient without any hypothesis. And this is very complicated to explain how, but just you give to the computer many, many variables, many, many parameters of the patient. And at the end, the machine, the computer is able to group the patient because they are very close each other. And in fact, sometimes this could lead to a new phenotyping, which is not based on your hypothesis. And this is very, very interesting because this really open your mind on what could be the, the OA process. Yeah, and it's so important, and particularly the latter part of what you were just saying there with regards distinguishing between, I guess, historically, the, the traditional way many people have defined these uh, groups or phenotypes of people has been based on their own theories, their own hypotheses. But more recently, using data and, as you suggested, machine learning methodologies to identify those phenotypes, where it obviously is not necessarily dependent upon a scientist or an investigator's beliefs about what is causing the disease. Are we finding much, if any, difference between the historical ways of defining the disease using theoretical or hypothesis-driven research versus uh, the machine learning methodology, Francis? So I think we are at the beginning of the story. What uh, I have in mind for that is for the pain phenotype, because the people with osteoarthritis have different sort of pain. It's not always the same fashion the patients describe their pain. 
And where is the pain, whether it's only on the joint or whether it's more widespread pain and so on. And I think that we are doing progresses in, in the field of non-driven uh, hypothesis phenotyping in this field. And so this could have a big impact because then you can choose the pharmacological and non-pharmacological approach of the patient based on this new phenotyping way. So I think this is one example easy to, to, to understand. I think that we are really going to a more personalized medicine in the field of OA, also thanks to these new methods to find this new way of phenotyping the patient. Yeah, that's superb. And I think it's a good segue into where I wanted to go next. So you're someone who both does research, but also works as a clinician. And with regards to the phenotyping methodologies themselves, has they changed at all the way your clinical practice runs? Has, has it had any impact in terms of what you say to patients in terms of how they develop disease, the prognosis or the progression of the disease? or the selection of treatments that you use in clinical practice? Yeah, uh, of course, today. Tomorrow we will see. But, but today, the fact that we are able to phenotype the patient according to the risk factor lead to the possibility to treat the patient according to these risk factors. So the messages uh, will not be the same if you are speaking to a patient with a metabolic OA phenotype compared to someone with a post-trauma OA phenotype, it's just uh, this example. Of course, for the trauma, you will try to find ways for preventing the trauma. It could be at, in sports, it could be uh, at work. Whereas for the metabolic phenotype, of course, you will work a lot with the patient in order to, to find ways for weight loss, to increase the physical activity. So the ways you will speak to the patient, give advices to the patient will be based on this kind of phenotyping. That's based on obviously our existing knowledge about the importance of those different phenotypes. And as you just alluded to, obviously influences the way you both communicate to the patient, but also uh, the selection of treatment. Now, you've given us a great overview of the different phenotypes that are out there and how they've been identified. Is there anything that listeners out there with osteoarthritis or without osteoarthritis can do to reduce their risk of having an osteoarthritis phenotype? Or if they do already have, reduce their risk of developing osteoarthritis completely? Oh, oh yes. A lot to do. Uh, and not, not based on drugs. In OA, overall, the way to decrease the risk of progression of OA or initiation of OA is based on non-pharmacological advices and treatment. The first one is the physical activity. Now it's very, very well known that whatever the phenotype, the physical activity will have a positive impact it will have a positive impact for pain. It will have a positive impact on inflammation, a positive impact also in order to, to resume uh, a sport once you have a trauma. And possibly, this is not uh, sure, but 
possibly also it could delay the process of OA. So altogether, the first message is moving, moving, moving. This is very, very important. Of course, when you are in a flare of the disease, this message could be difficult to listen. And at this stage, of course, when you are in a flare, you, you will decrease your physical activity, but I, this could be completely understandable. But just to keep in mind that once the flare has finished, then it's really important for your joints that you resume physical activity. And the second message is to eat healthy in order to have the right weight and maybe more than that, because we do not know everything around uh, what you eat and the consequence for the joints. But it's clear that this is uh, very, very important. So the two messages are here, the physical activity and to eat healthy. Then the drugs, uh, NSAIDs, analgesics, and so on, we just be there when it's a flare or something that uh, really needs for just a couple of days to have a, a, an effect. But just keep in mind that the most important way is the non-pharmacological approach. So important for everybody to hear is that, you know, those core treatments that we speak about for osteoarthritis are eminently applicable to someone who's at risk of developing the disease, very much focused obviously on keeping people active and trying to attain a healthy weight as well. Now, is there anything else that you wanted to say about the phenotype topic before I move on to probing you a little bit more with some more provocative questions? I think that we have to, to be very positive for the future because we now have very new methodologies, very new ways to phenotype the patient. That's what we call the endotypes. That means that now we can go up to the, the tissue, to the cells, in order to see how the cells works and maybe the, the cells from one tissue of one person works in another way than another patient in the same tissue and the same cells. It means that we can find what we call signatures. Like for the tumors in cancer, we are now able to find specific signatures of the tumors in order to give the right drug. And now, in many, many chronic diseases, and OA is part of that, we try now to find these new signatures into the tissues, leading to a new ways for phenotyping the patients. And altogether, maybe it will be in 10 years, I don't know, but in a, or a couple of years, I don't know. But with these progresses, you will have what we call the deep phenotyping. So it means that we will integrate all the environment factors around a patient, everything, also the dosage in the blood and so on. And in parallel, having the signature of the tissue and all together with these new, very modern methodologies, Altogether, this will lead to very, very accurate phenotyping of the patient. One patient with one phenotype, and then one specific ways to personalize the treatment. I think this is really the future. 
Yeah, it's very exciting. And as you just alluded to, the um, the scientific ability to do that is already with us, but the rollout of that to the individuals that come along to clinical practice is another thing altogether. So it may be a couple of years away yet. Now, again, just more in closing, and this is me just trying to learn a little bit more about you, Francis, but if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? To improve health, I think that I will try to give the message that it's very, very important to consider osteoarthritis as a whole of a person. It's not just the joint, it's the whole person. And once again, having this physical activity, having these healthy uh, meals, non-smoking, not drinking too much, and so on, all that will have a positive impact on your health. And then you will see the life really different. I know that it's not uh, so easy uh, when you have these habits, but step by step, not by changing everything on one day, but just very little steps, very little steps, then the result is here. Yeah, simple advice, but hopefully many people out there will heed that. Now, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? To continue to learn, we have to keep interactions, to keep to discuss. Read, read, read. I think this is very, very important. And discuss, discuss, and discuss again. And with your colleagues, with your patients, because with your patient, you can learn a lot also, because we discussed on pain, as an example. The fashion that the patient explained their pain will give you a lot of information that will help you then in your research. So this is so important to keep all these interactions, not only being in your office on that seat, but Try to discuss with the, the patients and your colleagues. Very, very important. That's the reason why, of course, we are so disappointed today uh, with this uh, COVID epidemic leading to much less interactions due to the all these uh, me- uh, meetings. Uh, and so the interactions are not so, so high, but we try to keep that. But this is really frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, as you say, it's changed a lot with COVID and shifted more online. And obviously, like this podcast, we're using different ways to communicate. But it's not not quite the same as the real thing face-to-face. And I look forward to seeing you again soon at some point in a conference in the not-too-distant future. But just out of personal interest, why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Ah, that's a very good question. I think my motivation was first that when I was 10 years old, I heard about uh, cardiac transplantation. And for me, it was incredible, amazing. And so that was my first motivation was to try to to do something for the patient. And then because of of interaction with my patient and and specifically in, in the field of osteoarthritis, they are so disappointed because they heard a lot of uh, discoveries in many other diseases and they really suffer from, from their disease because they are 
they consider that they're really isolated. The media, the politics are not really considering osteoarthritis as a problem. And of course, we know by speaking uh, with them every day that the quality of life is so disturbed by the disease. So my motivation is to find new ways to decrease this impact of the disease. Well, it's so important that we listen to our patients and it sounds like they've been wonderful advocates both for their own disease, but hopefully also their peers in stimulating you to uh, make some of the important discoveries and work that you're doing, both in the research and the clinical space. Now, just in closing, Francis, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people out there with osteoarthritis? Yeah, my advice is you don't have a disease of an old person. You are not old because you have OA. OA is really a disease. It's not the equivalent of uh, wrinkles or the white hair. It's not a fatality. Yeah, things can be done to fight the disease. And these things to do are much more efficient than what what you could think. Uh, It's not because we do not have drugs that it means that there are nothing to do. So please keep that in mind. It's not a fatality. And that's a great way to finish. And it sounds like your optimistic tray shone through in a very positive closing there, Francis. Really, really appreciate your time. And thank you very much for spending a little bit of time with me and discussing the topic that you are uh, leading in this field. Thank you, David. It was really a pleasure to be with you. Do you know what type of osteoarthritis you have and why it developed? Have you been less responsive to some interventions than you otherwise might have expected? Osteoarthritis phenotypes are observable characteristics of a disease with the implication of a mechanism that might play a role in disease development or its progression. There are different types of phenotypes, including metabolic, traumatic, and aging. The identification of these phenotypes will lead to targeted treatment in osteoarthritis. And hence, we need a much better understanding of phenotypes. Thank you very much for joining me this week. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.